So, Jay, where's Brian Braddock these days, anyway? Back in the lighthouse, I think. The rebuilt one, I mean. Although he does run around a lot. I thought he was ruling Otherworld. No, no, that's been over for a while. Huh, okay, I see. Anyway, it turned out it was all a setup by... Merlin, right? King the Conqueror. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 382 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the team that includes the Firestarter. It's, it's Excalibur again. It's Ben Robb's run, but like, for a full arc this time. Wait, the Firestarter? Oh, yeah, uh, Colossus was listening to the song Firestarter by the Prodigy when he was painting in Ben Robb's first issue's first panel, and I remain charmed, even low these many weeks later. Follow your weird heart, buddy. He did. And by him, I mean Colossus and Ben. So, Excalibur is Europe's premier superhero team and or version of the X-Men, depending on who you ask. Um, They're not sure quite how they fit into the post-Onslaught Marvel Universe in which nearly all of the non-mutant heroes are gone. Yeah, previously, the British Isles were much less hateful toward mutants than the U.S. They saw Excalibur as heroes. But that has definitely started to shift because what happened in New York with Onslaught was on TV for the world to see and did not make mutants look good. Right. It appeared as if mutants were responsible for the deaths of all of the American non-mutant heroes. And that, that reputation, that resentment have gone global. One longtime member of Excalibur, though, that being Brian Braddock, a.k.a. Captain Britain, temporarily a.k.a. Britannic, is not himself a mutant at all. Right. Uh, he got his powers due to some Arthurian stuff that's a little bit too complicated to get into right here. We've gone over it in the podcast before, and we'll link back to those episodes in the visual companion to this one if you're, if you're curious or if you haven't heard them. Um, but his powers are magical, although his background is in science. His fraternal twin sister, Psylocke, though, is absolutely a mutant. And she was recently saved from death by the mysterious, ambiguously Asian mystical dimension of the Crimson Dawn. So that seems like a weird segue we just had there, right? Well, not to this arc of Excalibur, which brings us to Excalibur number 107, Focus. Written by Ben Robb, penciled by Salvador LaRocca, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Kiff Scholl. And we actually have the same creative team on all four of these issues. Except for poor Kiff Scholl, who just gets a chance to assist on this one. I don't know. Maybe that's good. Maybe Kiff Scholl wanted to do something else with her life. Who knows? This is the last of that kind of consistency we're going to see for a while, because after this arc, no penciler is going to do more than a few issues in a row. Yeah, right up until the end of the run. It's true. But let's talk a little about the art before we start, because Salvador LaRocca is certainly an artist that I've read many issues that were penciled by, and I'm used to LaRocca's art being something that I don't, I don't dislike, but I don't look forward to it. So the difference that I think you're seeing is Scott Koblish, um, in particular, and in general the difference it makes to pair LaRocca with an inker. Because um, the majority of the art that you've seen of his, I'm guessing, is from Extreme X-Men, and in that, I believe he was just being colored directly over pencils. 
Yeah, and that definitely gives the art a soft look, which is fine, but with LaRocca's art, uh, I've at least found that that tends to make his faces look very samey, things aren't quite as well-defined, and the pages just sort of bleed into one big wash of art. Yeah, yeah, and again, that's that's an issue that can be colorist-specific, or it can be a problem when you're coloring directly over pencils. How that's handled really, really varies. There were a number of, there have been a number of series that do that to greater and lesser effect. And here, what the inks really do is give the pencils a sharp degree of definition. They differentiate faces in a lot of ways that they might not otherwise, or that we haven't seen when is just being colored over pencils. And they also take advantage of something that I love about Scott Koblish in particular, which is, I, I suspect, a skill common to a lot of longtime inkers, which is his ability to really nail evoking a lot of different art styles and specific artists, which we're going to see in this first issue. Very much so. And yeah, I have to say, the penciler-inker combination, I love. This is easily my favorite story penciled by Salvador La Roca that I've ever read. Like, I'm not saying it's, you know, demon bear level breathtaking, but it's very good, and the art is very fun, and I have, like, zero complaints at all about it. Yeah, it's a really, really good art team all across the board here. Mm-hmm. So, that's the visuals, and we'll certainly touch on them more as we go, But in terms of what happens, we start with a character I was not expecting to see, and also didn't know existed before this arc, that being Nigel McWhirter, who is grumpily watching a fancy hover car transform mid-air into a convertible and then land and drive away. And that last name may sound familiar to longtime readers slash listeners. Jay, would you like to remind us of the legacy of Clan McWhirter? Once upon a time... There was a humble hovercraft rental agent named Angus McWhirter, who made the mistake of renting a hovercraft to Excalibur. And then he got killed by Proteus. And then he was an angry ghost. It was a whole thing. Angus McWhirter was one of my favorite old, what I think of as comic book NPCs, just this minor character that had a name and a little bit of personality and backstory and therefore existed only as fodder for the villain. But, like, he was a total bag of dicks, so that when he died kind of twice, I wasn't really sad about it at all. Yeah, yeah, Angus McWhirter was awful. His cousin Nigel also seems awful, and also gets a bit of a backstory. Apparently Angus asked him to move back to Scotland instead of hanging out here in England. Uh, However, this is a Ben Robb story, not a Chris Claremont story. And what that means is when we see minor characters with little references to things, they're not just victims for the plot, they are instead affectionate continuity nods. And that's something we're going to see a lot of, at least in this arc of Ben Robb's run, the first full arc of the run, since Ben Robb's first issue was a one-shot. And it's fun. Like, I don't think the continuity nods are critical, but they certainly do bring an affectionate uh, remembrance to mine mind when they appear. So I know you really like those. I have much more mixed feelings about them. Because I feel like they they stick out from the story awkwardly. Like, I feel like they they mess with the pacing and the tone, and I don't mind them existing, but I'd like to see them better integrated into the comic. Well, that's fair enough, yeah. And I think I might be a little more forgiving of this one, because it appears before the plot really gets going. It's just sort of a nice little uh, continuity segue into what's going to happen. Yeah, but the, the story is really rife with them. It is. It's true. 
And while we're talking about how Ben Robb handles certain aspects of the past, let's talk about how he handles certain characters. Because this hovercraft turned race car was built by Brian Braddock, who, as we know, is uh, a talented and skilled engineer, while in addition to being Captain Britain. And he and Megan are taking it to London to go pick out a wedding ring. Not only that, their their plan is to get Loki married while they're there. Um, they're fairly clear about that later. Like, they're not just picking up a ring. Well, it's, spoiler, not going to work out because magic stuff. But yeah, Megan is grinning and driving while complimenting Brian's genius. Brian is worrying and fussing about the car he built because Megan's driving too fast. I feel like Ben Robb gets these characters pretty well. Like, his Megan is a little more naive and childish than we've seen her more recently, but that's not inconsistent with the entirety of her character, just with some of its development. The voices feel a little off at this point, and I don't know if that's something that's going to resolve as he as he settles in more, or if it's just something that I'm reacting to because it's a different writer coming in with, with very different takes on these characters than we've seen before. Uh, yeah, Ben Robin Warren Ellis have very different feels to them. Well, that, and I think Ellis's feel on the characters who had previously existed, basically everyone but Pete Wisdom, is fairly consistent with what comes before him. Yeah, I would agree, especially with, you know, Scott Lobdell kind of, for lack of a better word, diluting the very sharp characterization that Claremont and Davis had put in before. Yeah, and Rob Rob feels like he's building off Lobdell instead of off of Claremont, Davis, and Alice. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, I completely agree. So they encounter some folks who are really not happy to see them after they land slash park, namely some stereotypical British 80s-style punks with giant mohawks who were yelling at them about the onslaught situation. I don't know if in 1997 those stereotypical 80s British punks existed, but I always love to see them. Uh, yes. They still exist. Well, good for them, probably. This is interesting, though that they're specifically blaming Captain Britain, who is A, definitely not a mutant, and B, a longtime national hero, and Megan, who's not really known to be a mutant, even though she kind of sort of is. Like, is it just because they're associated with X-teams, despite not being mutant themselves? They're associated with X-teams, they're alive. There is that, yeah. There may be a bit of blaming any superhero who's alive. I haven't read much of the non-X post-Onslaught stuff, but I do know a number of heroes were still around, like, you know, Spider-Man... Black Widow, probably some others. And Every, I only, the, was... only the spider referential heroes. Yeah, yeah, basically that. But I kind of wonder if that was ever touched on with them, if people resented them for still being around when the big heroes were gone. I bet J. Jonah Jameson did. I was gonna say. Yeah, he's good at resenting things. Also having a mustache. A resentful mustache. Mustache of resentment. Plus one. Brian is infuriated by how the public is treating the two of them. He feels like they're being ungrateful, saying he's done trying to be a superhero, fuck this for real this time, he quits, he just wants to be a scientist. And to his credit, he then apologizes to Megan for his outburst and for potentially ruining their special day. You know, he has come a really long way since being a drunken, quasi-abusive partner in the first Excalibur story, The Sword is Drawn. And that evolution, I think, is earned. Not just quitting drinking, but he seems to have really worked on himself, and I respect that. Brian Braddock, well done. And that's not a sentence I very often have said. Yeah, that's been handled really gradually and organically, which I likewise appreciate. 
Yeah. And I also appreciate that he's still an emotionally volatile person. Like, he's come a long way, but it's not just like you say quit drinking or whatever the equivalent is, and everything is 100% easy and fine forever. Like, you know, his personality is still a part of how he reacts to things, and it's imperfect. It's flawed. He's going to continue working on that for the rest of his life, because, like, that's what it is to be people. Let's be fair. Brian's personality is awful. Aw, I love him. But also, you're not wrong. I mean, same. Alas, even though he does rally for that not-exactly-a-surprise-ring-purchase-second-proposal thing, it's the Marvel Universe, so nothing good can last for more than about four seconds, and Megan is smashed through a window, seemingly by... Spiral. Uh, Jay, who's Spiral again? Man, how come I keep getting the hard questions? Alright, so Spiral... Spiral is best known as the second command of Mojo, the absolute dictator of a pocket universe entirely based around media and ratings. Spiral herself was originally a stunt woman named Ricochet Rita before being captured and essentially transformed into her mad by Mojo. Um, and she has, she has, you know, six arms and two legs and she can manipulate magic in a number of ways using said arms to teleport, to warp time and space variously. She also runs a place called the Body Shop, where she radically transforms people, um, most notably Rachel Summers, Psylocke, and the Reavers. Yep. And one time, she and Mojo de-aged all of the X-Men and Captain Britain. And Brian's already on edge, so between his current emotional state and that rather traumatic memory, it is absolutely time for a misunderstanding-based fight. Spiral is able to end that fight, though, by pointing out that she's got a cool new facial tattoo. That's right, like Psylocke, Spiral now bears the mark of the Crimson Dawn, from whom she says she is here to protect Brian and Megan. So, Psylocke, not too long ago, was gutted by Sabretooth, as tends to happen when one is around Sabretooth. And the only reason she survived was that her friends took her to some mystics over in the generically mystical Orient, and uh, gave her this potion from a dimension called the Crimson Dawn. It did heal her, it also gave her shadow-stepping powers, and made her personality somewhat colder, and, uh, yeah, gave her a neat red tattoo over one eye, which does just straight up look awesome. Yes, uh, and the, they're trying so hard to make the Crimson Dawn a thing, and they're so ill-defined, and they're so boring. You are not wrong. The only interesting thing we've seen so far with the Crimson Dawn is that one of the wizards involved with them could animate the characters on uh, on signs, like the neon characters' letters on signs, and have them turn into spiders that walked around. Um, and then that turned out it wasn't even animated letters, it was just spiders disguised as letters. So I guess that means there are zero interesting things about the Crimson Dawn. Yes. Well... Anyway, we'll come back to them later, because this is a book called Excalibur, and there is in fact a team called Excalibur. What? Right? And they're still based on Muir Isle, off the coast of Scotland, working for Dr. Moira McTaggart. And we have, we've talked about Danger Room opens, where we see, you know, various X-Men training in the Danger Room, and we get their names, and their powers, and their personalities. This is, I guess, an engineering open? Because Nightcrawler and Shadowcat and Colossus and Wolfsbane 
Interestingly enough, the most X-Men-associated characters are building a giant goddamn version of the mutant-detecting Cerebro. And I love the visuals here. I love that the characters aren't just in their normal outfits. We have Kitty and Colossus in exercise gear, Kurt and Wolfsbane in these padded engineering outfits, and everything is just so... What defines an engineering outfit? Uh, I don't know. They're padded, and they have pouches and buckles, and they're, you know, thicker in case a screw flies out of a machine and tries to impale you. If I were an engineer, I'd, I'd want to wear those, especially like a superhero universe engineer, which seems much more of a hazardous profession. Okay. But everything is so colorful, not just the outfits, but also the immense, incomprehensible machine. And I love the way LaRocca draws this. It's... It's just so appealing in the way that good technology is in comics. Like, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. I couldn't identify a single aspect of that machine. But it's clearly a machine, it's very complicated, it's very colorful, and it looks really hard to work on, and thus justifies the scene around it. And I love it. Well, and it's got a helmet, so it's gotta be a Cerebro. Yeah, exactly. Pretty cool helmet, too. I also love the panel design. Uh, At one point, Wolfsbane backflips off the machine across a few panels to land. It's a nice way of visually showing her powers instead of just describing them. Well, an aspect of her powers. I like the banter here, too. I mean, the goal of a scene like this is to get to know the characters for any new readers. And we see that... Kurt is the lighthearted leader, Wolfsbane is the optimistic and encouraging character, Colossus is the big strong guy but with a wry sense of humor. And Kitty Pride and Pete Wisdom are just fucking incorrigibly awful. Yeah, yeah, there's some dialogue for both of them that uh, gets there, but these are characters that Ben Robb does not have such a perfect grasp of. Yeah, what was what was the Pete Wisdom bit that you you marked? Oh boy, let's see. A bloke needs a bloody mind reader to keep up with you, X-Men. Where have you been, Pride? You were supposed to meet me at the pub half an hour ago, my little Yankee strumpet. Why don't you quit flapping those luscious little lips and come here and give your man a peck? And then Pete Wisdom burst into flames and never appeared in another comic book again. I mean, okay, I'm not British whatsoever, but I feel like we've read enough comics to at least know what British people are supposed to sound like in comics, or at least, you know, the various types of dialects, and I don't think that's any of them. I I don't think that's any dialect known to humans, but I also don't think that we should be extrapolating what accents or accents or dialects are like based on Marvel superhero comics. That's probably true. And certainly Pete could be, you know, kind of putting on a bit like being extra stereotypically that kind of British, but if he is it doesn't come across. What kind of British? The kind that calls people little Yankee strumpets and talks about their luscious little lips? <laughs> Meanwhile, Kitty pretty much says like every other word. Yeah, yeah, she comes off a little more like uh, Jubilee here. Yeah. But that said, there's there's some cool stuff. Uh, Kurt explains kind of Excalibur's current mission statement, which has been a little ambiguous since the Alan Davis run. He says they're trying to live up to Xavier's legacy of proactively rescuing mutants. And that gives us a chance to have four full pages for each of those X characters talking about how Xavier and his associates rescued them. Uh, complete with each bit of backstory in in a style that evokes the original artist who drew it, usually Dave, Dave Cockrum, um, which is is really lovely. And I which which I, I get the impression just from from details and from other the stuff that he's drawn is is largely Koblish styling. Oh yeah, there's even a panel of Kitty running away from that Xenomorph-style alien in that one Christmas issue ages and ages ago. It's fun. 
As for Moira and Douglock, they're in the lab, working on the legacy virus. Still. And Moira gets a letter from Alistair Stewart, the head of the Weird Happenings organization. He's gonna be getting a prosthesis for Rory Campbell, the guy that may be destined to become Ahab. It's a whole thing. And this doesn't really need to be here, but I do appreciate that Rob, maybe it's just him showing off his continuity love, but that he doesn't drop former writers' plot lines. A lot of writers would, and it's nice to get just a little hint of some stuff that happened in Ellis's run. My issue with this, and I, I do appreciate that it's happening, is that it feels a lot like ticking off checkboxes. You know, that's there is something to it. Again, it's not it's not doing a lot to progress the story. It's not getting us giving us a lot other than, hey, remember this? I think for me, what it does is it smooths the transition from from one writer to another. It makes it feel less like two completely unrelated runs and more turning over a new plot leaf for a new writer. Like, things aren't being abandoned, they're just shifting. And I don't know, I think that's important. Fair, fair. That brings us to Excalibur number 108, The Old Ways. This is written by Ben Robb, penciled by Salvador LaRocca, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. We open with Colossus and Nightcrawler fencing, and it's pretty darn charming. Oh, man. And the art team still has fun with uh, clothing. Colossus had X-Men branded leggings last issue when he was working on that machine. Now he has sweats with Tekken 2, spelled differently to avoid copyright problems, down the leg. Uh, Kurt actually is wearing bike shorts with the Marvel Comics logo on them. I wonder if these were the same ones you could you could order with, like, box tops and $10. Oh, man, I always wanted those 90s X-Men clothes. What I super wanted was the jeans jacket with the X-Men cover on the back of it. Oh, fuck yeah, that based on the era was, like, way too big for anybody wearing it. I would still wear the absolute hell out of that, just want to say. All right, well, if we can ever travel back in time and we can't accomplish anything that's really important, then uh, let's find those clothes. Oh, if I can ever travel back in time, that's pretty much all I'm going to do. I know better than to fuck too hard with the time stream. That's true, you try to kill Hitler, you get command and conquer. But you get sweet 90s X-Men clothes, then you just have sweet 90s X-Men clothes. Exactly. You bring them to, you know, up to the future rather than try to, trying to take them further into the past. <laughs> yes. So Colossus kind of uh, describes what I think is one of the goals of this introductory run. Seems like the old days at Xavier's, does it not, Kurt? Complete with a faded background panel of John Byrne-era art of that era's team. But weirdly with Beast. Uh, Beast was around for some of it. I guess. Uh, Amanda Sefton, a.k.a. Amanda Sardos, a.k.a. Day Tripper, currently a.k.a. Margali Sardos, because I believe she's um, possessed Amanda for now, says goodbye to Colossus, but not Nightcrawler, and ports off. She also tells Colossus to give Nightcrawler a kiss for her, which is is a thing. Uh, you know, Nightcrawler and Colossus did both have amazing beards in the Extraordinary X-Men run, and I just want to see those beards all nice and tangled together. It'd be a beautiful thing. Yeah, the Amanda Sefton being possessed story, A, hasn't been fully revealed at this point, and B, actually won't continue until X-Men Unlimited number 19, which is quite a while from now, so she's just sort of written out of the book. It was, I was impressed that Rob remembered that she was on the team, since both Ellis and Lopsell regularly forgot that she existed. Oh, I tell ya. Actually, wait a minute— I'm thinking of the other character like that, Mondo from Gen X. Both characters the writers would regularly forget, and both characters that turned out to be secretly evil. Wait, what happened to Micromax? Oh, shit. He was so very forgotten that he must be very evil. Although I think he does come back in number 125, the series finale. Eh, that doesn't count. Everyone comes back in the finale. 
Even Farron, who's real pissed off about being forgotten. Especially Farron. Man, I miss those characters. I think I just miss the Alan Davis Excalibur run. It's so goddamn good. Oh, same. That's the trouble with Excalibur, is that the early stuff is so good that what's a perfectly serviceable comic later on looks real bad by comparison. Yup. Speaking of things that we don't think look quite as good, hey, it's Kitty and Pete. They are affectionately antagonistic as usual. Pete gets an email from or about someone named Peckham, but Kitty phases through his computer before he can read it, which is a dick move. Right? And then she threatens him with a new costume, which, coming from her, is actually a pretty serious threat. (laughs) Yeah, Rob writes Kitty as very much the dominant one in the relationship, this sort of mischievous, irresponsible, childlike, playful character. Like, she even giggles in her thought bubbles. That is jarring. It's really jarring. Rain and Douglock, meanwhile, are busy worrying about Moira, who's been shut up researching the legacy virus nonstop while slowly dying of it. A brief artistic note about Wolfsbane. We'd been sort of annoyed slash baffled by the fact that since she joined Excalibur, she had been in her transitional human wolf form with the brownish skin and the sideburns and the claws and stuff all the time when she had been so happy in X-Factor previously about finally being able to transform into her human form. And here, we see her, once again, in her human form, by default. She does have long red hair like the wolf in form, which, you know, it used to be a big deal plot-wise for her that she only had short spiky hair normally. But, you know, whatever. It's nice to see that plot line picks back up again. I wonder if that's deliberate or if it's a coloring and inking error. That's a really good point. I do not know. I think it must be deliberate, though, because when she's in her human form here, when she's colored that way, she doesn't have those characteristic werewolfy sideburns. So that's got to be a choice on the penciler's part as well. Mm, depends on the degree of detail on the pencils versus um, versus the inks and how much how much the inks we're adding. Okay, well, an artistic deliberate decision, regardless, instead of an error, is what I'm saying. For somebody's well, that, that deliberate decision can also be an error. True. True. Oh man, story of so many of our lives at so many times. Anyway, Douglock promises to keep an eye on Moira while Kitty and Rain get away for a bit for a, a much-needed vacation. They're headed to Dublin, Ireland, um, but they're they're concerned, as is everyone, with the status, status of mutants back in the UK and whether they'll be kicked out of the country. While they're in town, they also get their hair done by someone named Molly Fitzgerald, who is a fairly obscure superhero named Shamrock. And Shamrock first appeared in the Contest of Champions, and um, she's got a remarkably long history her superpowers are basically um basically cultural stereotype which is to say luck she beat up captain america once Mm -hmm. well done shamrock this issue is fun though because there's a little note asking if you can identify who molly fitzgerald is and directing you to the letter column and in the letter column This whole thing was used as a promotion for the new ability of readers to email letters to Marvel at marvelmail at aol.com, but you'd have to, like, direct your emails to either Excalibur or Swordstrokes, because at this time, Marvel had one single email address. I must know if that email address still works. Oh, man, we should totally send them something cool after this. Dear Marvel Mail, we have a letter for Swordstrokes from Excalibur number 108. But uh, yeah, apparently the prize was that Marvel would send a signed copy of the issue to both the first physical and the first emailed letter they received with the correct answer. So, uh, listeners, if one of you got that, we would love to hear from you. If you were one of those two people, yeah. 
Um, meanwhile, in London, the dragons of the Crimson Dawn have returned to conquer their birth world once more. Uh, so there are three of these guys. There is uh, Barak, who is very large and can grow larger. He has bright red skin and a skull mask, more than the usual number of arms, although it's kind of unclear how many, uh, and mystical scimitars. Yeah, and then there's Ra'al, who is their boss. Uh, she's got pure white skin with some sort of tiger-like markings on her scalp. She can spit corrosive acid, which is impressively gross. She's also very sexualized visually. She's wearing almost nothing. And the art goes to these immense camera angle lengths to keep her breasts adequately, if improbably covered, by just this necklace that she's wearing. Like, it makes no sense that there are no visible nipples in this entire story arc, because that necklace, unless it has its own superpower, should not be able to do that. I feel like if you're gonna do that, you should lampshade it, like, with a little Hawkeye head. <laughs> yes. And I, yeah, I agree. Like, specifically put a little Hawkeye head into this story over her breasts. I wonder if anyone has made pasties of that. Oh, that's such a good idea. I love it. Anyway, the final final uh, dragon of the Crimson Dawn is Ayin, who has green skin, wears actual clothes, can fly, and has some kind of telepathy represented by rainbows shooting out of the Omega on his forehead. It's, it's pretty cool looking, I'm not gonna lie. And Captain Britain is able to take out Barak with a well-timed kick to the head, but he is losing his outer suit in the fight a bit at a time, revealing his costume below. I guess take a drink? Take a drink, but, like, have a chaser sitting next to you that you ignore? <laughs> at that point, Megan flies to his aid, and the fight continues. So, it turns out Spiral was expecting the Crimson Dawn folks to win easily, and is dismayed that Captain Britain and Megan seem to be rallying. Right, Spiral has made some kind of ambiguous deal with the Crimson Dawn. Uh, she's supposed to deliver to them the power they seek and to show them a way to harness that power. But nonetheless, when Megan shows up, Spiral immediately assures her that no, no, she's on the side, she's on the good side, and urges Megan to get Excalibur for help. Which brings us to Excalibur number 109, Dragon Moon Rising. With the same creative team from last time. Nice. So... This Cerebro build is taking forever, and as somebody who used to build computers, I can assert that, yes, that, that happens sometimes if it's something you haven't built before. Uh, Kurt is actually working on Cerebro with a set of precision screwdrivers that I'm pretty sure I have in my desk drawer. Like, it's clear LaRocca slash Koblish we're getting some real-world reference here. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's kind of nice. It's still very much a fantasy machine, but having those realistic details kind of superimposed onto and into it gives it a degree of verisimilitude that's a lot of fun. Yeah, for real. Like, the insulated cables in the machine, the screws that are very clearly flathead screws, and those little frictive copper thumb screw tighteners at the end of some of the cables, I don't know what those are called, but, like, those are all real things that I and a lot of people have worked with. And... Yeah, I just haven't seen this side of LaRocca's uh, visual design in his later work. I really, really enjoy it. Unfortunately for your getting to see the machine, it blows up, and uh, Nightcrawler has to port himself and Mara out of the way of the explosion. It does give him a chance to hold out the demolished helmet and give it an alas poor Cerebro speech, complete with a Renaissance-looking font. You know, despite myself, I find myself really enjoying this run that I used to totally disparage. Like, I'm not going to say it's amazing, but it is genuinely fun a lot of the time. Rob's Nightcrawler is really solid, in, at least in this arc. Yeah, totally agreed. 
As for the other X characters, Colossus, Shadowcat, and Wolfsbane, they're working out in the gym downstairs, and I appreciate that Colossus and Wolfsbane are doing so in their human forms, like training their bodies without benefit of their powers. That's kind of cool. And like, the gym is just a normal gym with those padded weight machines. There's an issue of She-Hulk where there, that's actually a really big deal because as She-Hulk, she's exponentially stronger than she is as Jennifer Walter, so it makes way more sense for her to work out as Jennifer Walter because then she gains exponential strength comparatively as She-Hulk, and that's always kind of stuck with me with regards to how superheroes work out. Oh yeah, no, that's a great idea, I love it. Uh, alas, Spiral, carrying the unconscious Megan, teleports in right next to Nightcrawler, leading to another misunderstanding-based fight. But at least this one is one where one party has three swords and the other has four, so that's pretty cool. It's great. The rest of Excalibur joins the fight and takes it elsewhere, but when Megan wakes up, she is immediately distracted by this ghostly dude who she briefly saw before. After he disappears, though, she does go to help with the fight. Uh, she parts the molecules of the floor with a fzash and hovers downward through them. So, yeah, everybody hates Spiral. I mean, she de-aged the X-Men back in that one annual, and the New Mutants had to grab their graduation costumes to save them. And, uh, yeah, here we have some X-Men and some New Mutants from that era. It's not just that everyone hates Spiral, it's that nobody trusts Spiral. Totally, yeah. What I don't trust is the fact that it's mentioned that that encounter from Uncanny Annual number 10 was a few months ago. It was 10 goddamn publishing years ago. Wow, time does not move at anything resembling a standard pace in the Marvel Universe. Or during this pandemic. But Megan backs Spiral up, saying, no, 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 it wasn't Spiral that attacked her and Brian, it was the dragons. Kurt is skeptical. Dragons? London's tube may look like giant serpents, Megan, but... Oh, come on, Kurt. Megan hasn't been that naive in years. Or months? Weeks? Days? What is time? And Kurt's usually not quite that sarcastic. Spiral explains, No, 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 she ran away from Mojo in the Wild Ways. She's not working with him anymore. The Wild Ways here, by the way, are depicted as if a Star Wars hyperspace tunnel was tie-dyed, which I fucking love. Yeah, that seems about right. Mm-hmm. But alas, the dragons escaped their Crimson Dawn dimension and managed to find her in the hyperspace wildways, and I guess threatened her into agreeing to help them get to Earth and branding her with that eye thing. And she figured, oh, she could just manipulate her way out of it. Yeah, it didn't work out. So Megan pleads with them to trust her. Oh, Kurt, can't we at least try to trust her? For Brian's sake, please, we, we were to be married. Nightcrawler responds. Uh, yeah, married. If there is anyone present who can think of a reason why we should not have our heads examined for trusting Spiral, may you speak now or forever hold your peace. Which Shadowcat responds? I always cry at weddings. Then by the power vested in me as Excalibur's team leader, I pronounce this mission a go. So yeah, like I said fun. It's not exactly the same mix of emotionally resonant and silly that Alan Davis Excalibur was. Of course, it's hard to meet that, like you were saying, Jay. But it is fun. And while I did enjoy Ellis's run, it wasn't always that. I just want Alan Davis back. I always just want Alan Davis back on this book. Well, good news. We'll get to his uh, run of X-Men before too very long in the podcast. Well, off the team goes to, you know, elsewhere, watched over by that silent ghost guy. 
Meanwhile, the dragons have ported Brian to Hong Kong to a very sci-fi-looking lab. Their plan is to channel Captain Britain's power by merging magic and science to take over the world, but also especially the Middle Kingdom, which was um, China from around 1000 BCE. So the old Captain Britain tagline was dipped in magic, clothed in science. Weirdly, also the tagline of Dippin' Dots. Mm, yeah, true. If you're going to have Captain Britain pulled into a story that he doesn't have a lot of connection to, that is the way to do it. That is a good avenue. Now, Brian fights back ineffectively, and he mentions here that his powers are still connected to his proximity to England, which technically has not been the case since Excalibur number 50. Since then, he's had to wear his suit to have powers since Excalibur destroyed the Otherworld Energy Matrix. So, to be fair, nobody gets their continuity right all the time. Also, this part has been confusing, because the way Brian's powers worked, how his suit was or wasn't related, how England was or wasn't related, how the multiverse was or wasn't related, that's gone back and forth a fair bit. So, if you're going to mess something up, like, alright, fair. Raal enjoys Brian's resistance, or something. I find his resilience quite stimulating. The Time Witch promised to deliver us a power even greater than that of our new soul sister, your own twin sibling, Betsy. Okay, okay, so we have the dipped in magic, closed in science thing, and then we have bringing in the fact that Brian's twin sister is already part of the Crimson Dawn. You know what? This didn't seem like an Excalibur plotline, and I'm not saying it does, but it does fit with Captain Britain, 100%. Yeah, it, the Crimson Dawn stuff, Rob does a pretty good job of making the Crimson Dawn stuff fit to Excalibur. I, I just still don't find any value in the Crimson Dawn. Mm, sorry, Crimson Dawn. I mean, I'm sure you're good at some things. Eh. Red things. Brings us to Excalibur number 110, Hearts Bled Crimson, with again the same creative team as the previous three. So now the team is in Hong Kong, and Spiral is helping them, but even she is not quite sure why. They find Captain Britain, or at least they track him down to a castle protected by a laser grid, and Megan's see-through fella shows up again to tell her that Captain Britain is still alive, but they're running out of time. And he also tells her a little bit about himself. Um, his name is 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 uh Sensu, and he pauses to tell Megan his entire story. So he was a monk at the end of the Ming Dynasty, which fell despite his fervent prayers to the contrary. And that in turn shattered his faith, and in response, he and three of his friends, Ayin, Barak, and Raal, joined the Crimson Dawn to get the power to re-enthrone the Emperor. So I guess now this is a Crimson Dawn story with its origins in China. I know there's been a lot of Japanese imagery and references in the Crimson Dawn in the past, and I don't know, like, on the one hand, certainly China and Japan's histories have interacted a great deal, but also it just seems to be that trend of genericizing Asia in general that we see so often in comics. Yeah, this actually doesn't originate the Crimson Dawn in China. It just sets the origin of the dragons of the Crimson Dawn in China. It it establishes the Crimson Dawn as something that had already existed that they, they allied with. Okay, you know, that's a fair point. Totally a fair point. I take that back. They were then tempted by the Dawn's power, the other three were anyway, and they, they all turned onto Sensu and stabbed him a lot, and thus they became the dragons of the Crimson Dawn, and Hyensu's spirit, quote, was sentenced to wander the earth, awaiting their inevitable escape from the Crimson Realm. Huh. And I know that this is not how his name's pronounced, but based on its spelling, and there's a D in it, I initially, skimming closely, read it as Janu, which... Um, is I then couldn't stop thinking of, of him as, also because he looks just enough like Manny Jacinto for me to make that connection. 
Oh, now I'm just imagining him helping Excalibur by pulling out a Molotov cocktail. Oh my god, Jason Mendoza of the... Jason Mendoza, like, ghost adversary of the Crimson Dawn would be amazing. Okay, yes, that is what would make the Crimson Dawn interesting. Throw Jason Mendoza in there. Perfect. I mean, that would make pretty much anything interesting. Good point. Good point. It, as, as he's, he's, he's like a Molotov, Molotov cocktail. You have a problem, you throw him at it, you get an entirely different problem. <laughs> Perfect. But no, this is Yensu, who is, is, is not Jason Mendoza at all, and is, is in fact much, much more serious. And back inside, Brian is doing his best to resist the agonizing psychic probes of his captors. Spiral has hooked the dragons up with tech to siphon off Brian's quote-unquote energy, whatever that means in this context. Sounds euphemistic. Sounds sexual. This is this is the yeah, his precious essences. Mm, exactly. Got to keep that stuff. So they're they're going to use this power to shatter the barrier between this world and the Crimson Dawn's realm. And sensing Yensu's presence, Raal sends Barak off to see what's up. And Excalibur takes him down, but not after he's told on Spiral, and said, you know, no, no, she's actually working with us. Spiral claims that the tech is useless without her magic to temper it, and she teleports Barak away, apparently helping out Excalibur for real. And for some reason, this time Excalibur believes that she's really on their side, although I still wouldn't buy it. You know, I think what it is is that Spiral is just making manipulation roll after manipulation roll, and she just rolled a 1, and then she rolled a 20 right after. Megan zooms into the castle with a great big zoom sound effect, which I like. Um, but alas, it is too late. The world of the Crimson Dawn is already superposing itself over the 616, but it's gonna be okay, because Hyensu says that she and Brian's love will save the world. Yeah, uh, Brian reclaims the energy they stole from him, and Megan helps him drain the energy from the portal and redirecting it into him to seal the rift. And I appreciate that initially Brian tries to sacrifice himself nobly, and Megan's basically like, honey... No, 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 we're not going to do that because I love you. That's not a good decision. Let's do it together and we'll be fine. And they are fine. Well, kind of. So the dragons are defeated. They give a villain speech and fuck off. And Brian gives Megan her ring. And, and later she finds him sitting, sitting outside and he tells her that he has no powers anymore. And he's cool with that, but he's going to need some time away to just sort of get used to being a person again. Will she wait for him? I mean... They both waited a while. Brian first proposed to Megan in Alan Davis's run in Excalibur 61, but then got pulled into the time stream a few issues after that, and they won't finally get married until, like we said, the series finale in number 125. Yeah, that's only 15 issues. She can wait. Yeah, yeah. If we can get through that coverage, then she can wait. But yeah, Brian won't get his powers back until the four-issue Excalibur Volume 2 miniseries a few years from here. And after that, there's just not a lot of him and Megan. There's a short Avenger story that they're in. There's a run of New Excalibur by Claremont that he's in, but she isn't really. There's a 15-ish issue run of Captain Britain and MI-13. But yeah, this basically marks the end of Captain Britain as a central character in an X book or other book for a very, very long time. And with that, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Jay, as a knitter, please give us some insight into who among the X-Folks knit, and what kinds of projects do they have on the needles? I may be missing some folks, but I know canonically that Strong Guy knits. And when we've seen him knitting, it's just been a rectangle. I would assume, based on the character, that he is the person who just either just makes scars or just makes Afghan, Afghan squares. Does he give them to anybody in particular? Probably, yeah. 
I assume that there are like little old ladies who are the beneficiaries of this because he seems like the kind of guy who would make things for little old ladies. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Okay, what about non-canonically? What about, say, one of the New Mutants or a member of Gen X? Do any of them seem particularly likely to be knitters? I mean, Rain seems likely to know how. Uh, let's see, Generation X. I'm not sure. I see. I have I have trouble with with the the, the characterizing of the, the yeah, this person is or isn't likely to be a knitter because I, I feel like the the thing that most knitters have in common is liking to knit. Mm, fair. But Strong Guy is sort of predisposed to that because he's actually from Rhinebeck, New York, which is is the site of one of the largest um, fiber fest- fiber arts festivals in the country. Whoa! I wonder if that's the canonical reason for that, or if that's just a coincidence. That is not the canonical reason for that. Well, it's still really cool. It is. It's it's a nice detail, and I, I don't think it was a, a deliberate reference, but I, I I dig that. Yeah, he's established as being from Rhinebeck fairly early in X Factor, and um, the knitting came up in the the not most recent, not previous, most recent, but I think the last New Mutant series before Powers of Ten. I think Mondo might knit, but he was evil anyway, so he was probably just knitting evil things, plants that would come to life. He crochets the horror. Captain Maglu asks. Favorite issue of another title where a major X character guest starred? I tried so hard not to think of a guest role that was Logan, that was Wolverine. My favorite is a guest role that is Logan. That specifically is 2014's Ms. Marvel, number six and seven, near the very, very beginning of the Kamala Khan series of runs. Uh, in that one, Logan teams up with Kamala due to circumstances. They're both fighting remote-controlled alligators in a sewer, like you do. And this is Kamala's first team-up with another superhero, and Wolverine's one of her favorites. And it's so much fun seeing her just gleefully fangirl out while still trying to be cool, and him just grumble and sigh as he's forced to team up and mentor yet another teen girl. Oh, it's not just that Wolverine's one of her favorites. She writes Wolverine fanfiction. Yes, yes she does. It's it's a delight. I mean, I enjoyed Ms. Marvel from the start, but it was actually that little two-issue mini-arc that really cemented it as one of my favorites. It's really, really, really charming. It also ends up tying really heavily into the book's plot. I mean, Logan's the one that realizes that Kamala's powers are probably inhuman-based. Or, you know, at least in the comics. Do you have a favorite, Jay? Honestly, you pulled the words out of my mouth. That is absolutely where I would have gone as well. Yeah, listeners, if you haven't read G. Willow Wilson's uh, initial pair of Miss Marvel runs, I think it was two runs because it got renumbered by Secret Wars, it, they're really worth your time. They're so much fun. The art by Adrian Elfona and others is so much fun. Like, it is that good. If you've seen the show and liked it, if you've seen the show and didn't like it, if you haven't seen the show, worth it regardless. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So on to the angry Claremontian narrator. Oh, Jesse Ward, Hester 5-6. All your machinations and grand plans have come to naught. I'd like to say it's a matter of incompetence, but honestly, you also massively underestimated the general uselessness of humanity. So I guess this is on them, too. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. 
If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week is Hawk Talk, but we'll be back in two weeks with even more Crimson Dawn. This is how we live now. (laughs) 